0: arsenal for democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or apple and stitcher and we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenal for democracy for three dollars a month the show is recorded and produced by me bill humphrey in newton massachusetts our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. follow us on facebook or at afd radio on twitter the show is not affiliated with any campaign committee and each participant's opinions are their own this man
1: is your land this man is my
0: Island, the redwood forest is duly water. This man is made for you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode four hundred and forty-seven, recorded on Sunday, November sixth, twenty twenty-two. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me online from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. The filing cabinet is a second industrial revolution invention from the United States. It became important after the mid century innovations in cheap mass production paper, the mid 1860s invention of typewriters, and the post Civil War explosion in corporate and governmental clerical work that we've previously covered. It was no longer good enough to fill up a shelf, safe, cubbyhole array, or just a book with records, especially with loose-leaf paper becoming more widely deployed. Storing and retrieving documents efficiently and consistently became an imperative. This became even more important once again at the start of the third industrial revolution with the rise of Xerox. Today, we'll cover both phases of this simple but iconic piece of office equipment and some associated technologies that made it relevant. For more on our coverage of earlier 19th-century developments in paper production, typing, and the growing scale of corporate clerical filing, don't miss our episode 314 from June 2020 called The Planned Economy. As always, everything is linked in our show notes released as a PDF with the episode at arsenalfordemocracy.com. But now, for today's topic, let us begin where those developments left off and start off with the fundamentals. What is a filing cabinet? A filing cabinet can be made of wood or metal, but it requires several components to be a filing cabinet. A drawer slide for smooth opening, an outstop to keep the drawer in the cabinet, and handles to pull a drawer out. Optionally, it may also include a lock for low-grade document security, a thumb latch to keep it from accidentally drifting open, or a device to keep files upright in the drawer when not filled completely. Today, hanging files have come to replace manila folders, and so the problem of keeping files upright has mostly been eliminated. Design specifications and safety measures for filing cabinets sold in industrialized nations are typically regulated by trade groups on the private sector side and procurement requirements on the government side. Ideally, the cabinet protects documents from fire or water damage and also has some kind of separator system such as file folders or something like that to keep the documents less jumbled. The filing cabinet was invented in the United States in 1886 by inventor Henry Brown. Brown's design was what we would today call a horizontal or lateral filing cabinet, which means the files are usually stored perpendicular to the opening of the drawer and run along a wide cabinet face. This is differentiated from the later vertical filing cabinet you're probably picturing, which is much narrower and taller, ranging from two to five drawers on top of each other typically. In the vertical filing cabinet, all the files face forward, not sideways along the cabinet. Fundamentally, the technology of both types of filing cabinets, still widely in use today, is the same, and it's just a question of how the files are organized, or whether you need to store files with a different document dimension. Vertical cabinets tend to take up less floor space, but dominate more of the room's airspace. Sometimes, today, filing cabinets are mounted on wheels so they can be rolled around. Vertical filing cabinets were invented in the 1890s, not long after— By a major American office supply company called Library Bureau, which had famously extensive contracts to supply the hundreds and hundreds of Carnegie libraries being built all over the country. Library Bureau eventually had offices and factories all over, including New York and Chicago, as well as headquarters in Boston, and also had some smaller operations in Europe in the early 20th century. Library Bureau eventually, in the 1920s, got merged into the infamous Remington Rand office supply and gunmaker conglomerate that had originated as a typewriter manufacturer. Library Bureau's 1903 advertisement for their vertical filing cabinets read as follows, quote, Vertical filing, as originated and perfected by the Library Bureau, is the most complete, accurate, and practical method ever invented for taking care of correspondence, catalogs, reports, invoices, orders, duplicate bills, and loose sheets or papers of any kind for any business, large, small, or peculiar. Let's talk about the slippy-slidey part of the concept of filing cabinets. Let's start with ball bearings and filing cabinet technology and their relationship. Although ball bearings were an important early first Industrial Revolution technology from the 1790s, It was not until 1883 that German inventor Friedrich Fischer invented the standardized mass production balls for such bearings. Up until that point, bearing balls were produced for custom jobs with custom specifications, and they were often inconsistently milled. In order for other technologies to be developed or refined that integrated ball bearings into general mass production finished goods, the balls needed to be consistently manufactured at massive scale in preset sizes. It is probably not an accident that the invention of the filing cabinet, which does feature ball bearings for the drawer slides, occurs only three years later. Filing cabinets generally do not use lubricant oil for the drawer slide because of the problem of keeping the liquid in place, but they are kept sliding through the use of grease, typically white lithium. Greasing something up, of course, was an ancient technique, not a modern invention, but I thought I would mention at this point that people might not know they're supposed to do this with their filing cabinets, but regular greasing of the drawer slides is considered routine maintenance to keep them in good working condition. So if you've got a filing cabinet at home and you've never greased it up, maybe think about that. Think about whether you need to do some greasing up. In any case, wood filing cabinet drawers are another thing that people have to deal with if they don't have those metal filing cabinets and those tend to swell up and stick seasonally because of their own properties as opposed to the drawer slides being stuck unless the slides themselves are made of wood which is less common and if you have that then you're going to need to use like a candle or something to loosen that up. In any case that's the basics of what physically a filing cabinet is and the process by which they were invented. Now, one thing we like to talk about on this show is the rise of various monopolies. Now, obviously, we did talk about a very monopolistic office supply company library bureau earlier, which ended up being part of Remington Rand, but there is another story that we should talk about, and that is the post-war monopolization of the filing cabinet market. After World War II, the Home O'Kneiss Company, which is spelled H-O-M-E-O-N-E, N-I-Z-E, was established in Muscatine, Iowa, to provide returning veterans with jobs. And this is quoting now from Wikipedia on the Filing Cabinet article. You'll see why in a second we're talking about this company. Founded to produce steel kitchen cabinets, the company soon encountered the reality of the limited availability of steel. Remember, this is just at the end of and immediately following World War II. So the company began to make products for others. Finally, a small amount of steel was secured, and the company started manufacturing steel index card boxes. Soon after, larger cabinets began to be produced, including filing cabinets. By designing to minimize the amount of steel, the product was extremely cost-effective in design and had huge commercial success. Home O. Nice never did make kitchen cabinets, and in 1961, the company name was changed to H-O-N. Today, the HON company, a division of HNI Corporation, is the predominant North American manufacturer and marketer of filing cabinets. They are still based in Muscatine, Iowa.
1: So as a bit of a side tangent, but speaking of index card storage, which was HON's first product line before settling into their big filing cabinet production business. In the 1950s, the Rolodex was invented in the U.S. at the New York-based stationary company Zephyr American. The Rolodex is a rotating index card storage device used to organize and store business contact information. The name is a portmanteau of rolling and index, and it's still used as a name for basically any system that performs the function of organizing contact information. And it's such an iconic office accessory that a Rolodex has been displayed at the Smithsonian, and I'm sure you've seen many Rolodexes in uh, TV, films, and so forth.
0: Back to our main narrative. HON, this post-war company in Iowa making filing cabinets after graduating from index card storage, hit their stride at just the right time, because, although the advent of the Second Industrial Revolution had created a much greater need for document storage than ever before in history, the 1870s in turn had nothing on the paperwork of the period beginning in 1959 because of the invention and proliferation of the Xerox copier machine and eventually computer printers." Rachel, can you tell us the story of Xerox briefly?
1: So, people have been trying for many decades, and probably dreaming of doing it for centuries, to develop simple and rapid document copier technology, something that did not require typesetting or copying by hand or typewriter, which was slow or risked to introducing clerical errors. Xerox was not the first effort, but after we talk about some of its more primitive antecedents from the late 19th century, we'll explain what set it apart and why, When it arrived on the scene in 1959, merging together photography, powered synthetic inks based on petroleum, electronics, and the previous century's paperwork revolution. So first, let's talk about the electric pen. Um, As clerical work proliferated, an easy way to duplicate documents was needed. Thomas Edison invented the electric pen to meet that need. The pen was powered by a wet cell battery that drove a reciprocating needle that made 50 punctures per second. The user wrote or drew the desired words or illustrations on a stencil, much like using a normal pen. However, unlike a normal pen, the ink is applied to the stencil after writing. The ink is forced out of the perforations onto paper that's placed under the stencil. The main disadvantage to the electric pen was the wet cell battery, which had to be maintained by experienced telegraphists, so only clerks who were already familiar with wet cell batteries, such as telegraph office clerks, were comfortable using them.
0: And you can refer back to our episode on electrochemical battery technology, which I will link in the notes there.
1: Other stencil creation methods replaced the electric pen, and the typewriter made it completely obsolete by the late 1880s. Um, Another big uh, um, piece of technology that kind of used the same concept as the electric pen was the mimeograph machine. So it also used ink being forced through a stencil onto paper, but better methods for stencil creation were developed. Um, Typewriters, operating in a stencil mode, could be loaded with stencil material, which was a coated tissue-like paper. The stencil mode of of the typewriter moved the ink ribbon out of the way of the keys, and the keys were allowed to strike the stencil material directly. And the force of the key strike removed the coating from the paper, which then allowed it to be permeated by the ink. Stencils could also be made by stylus to render illustrations rather than words. The stencil was then loaded onto the mimeograph machine by wrapping it around an ink roller, and then a piece of paper passed under the ink roller and ink was forced through the stencil onto the paper. A rotating rotating drum moved the paper through the machine, and it thus enabled users to quickly create copies. Although commercial copiers and printers were released in the 1960s, which we'll talk about soon, mimeograph machines were a popular way to cheaply make copies, and they were a common sight in smaller offices, churches, and schools well into the 1970s and 80s. And uh, pretty famously, fanzine makers also used mimeograph machines to cheaply create and distribute their zines. But now onto Xerox. Although the concept of printing images using an electrically charged metal plate and dry powder toner was developed in 1938 by a physicist named Chester Carlson, it took 20 years to become a commercially viable product. Joseph C. Wilson, the heir to the photography equipment company, the Haloid Photographic Company, saw the promise of Carlson's idea and signed a development deal with him. Haloid also coined the term xerography from the Greek words for dry writing, uh, it, referring to that uh, dry powder toner. Haloid changed their name to Haloid Xerox in 1958 and then Xerox Corporation in 1961. The first commercial copier machine, the Xerox 914, was released in 1959. It featured a document feeder, scanning light, and rotating drum. It was wildly popular and brought in almost $60 million in revenue by the end of 1961. So in the 1960s, Xerox really had their heyday. They teamed up with the UK's rank organization to develop the Xeronic Computer Printer, and it was delivered in 1964 as a special order to Lions Computers Limited for use with their LEO-3 computer. In 1963, Xerox also came out with a desktop copier machine, the Xerox 813, which was the successor to the Xerox 914. In 1966, the Xerox 2400 was introduced. The 2400 in the name referred to the number of prints it could make in an hour. It also featured an automatic paper feeder, a paper slitter and perforator, and collator able to sort copies of multi-page documents without the need for human collation. In
0: 1969, Xerox began to apply all these technologies together with lasers to develop the laser printer for computers, which was not finished until 1976, after which even more paper documents would be generated. Because there still weren't personal-sized computers in an office context at this point to use these laser printers, and IBM had not yet released their famous rival Office PC, Xerox also developed the Xerox Star personal computer for networked office use and more or less invented the basic metaphorical language concepts and many of the associated visual object icons we still associate with these computers to present day, such as talking about the desktop of the computer and having a little icon of pieces of paper for a file of writing. They also developed many of the modern features of personal computing, such as a window-based graphical user interface GUI, a mouse-like pointing device, and a bitmapped display. However, Xerox weren't successful with this because of the high price point and the vision of networked computers that most potential com- customers did not yet realize was going to be the corporate future. A Xerox Star office setup complete with network and printers would cost $100,000, well out of the reach of most offices. Apple, however, later bought the rights to Xerox's GUI and were able to make a more affordable personal computer, the Apple Macintosh, released in 1984, which is why so many of these symbols survived, even with Xerox Star being unsuccessful itself. It's not surprising that an office technology titan like Xerox would formulate all the metaphors for the user interface around office supplies.
1: Another branch of the development lab was able to create long-distance xerography, or LDX, by connecting two 914 copiers using the public telephone network. The LDX system was introduced in 1964. Many years later, this work was commercially available in Xerox's telecopiers, the precursor to the modern fax machine. Um, Also uh, in uh, the development world for Xerox, in the 1970s, Xerox released a color printer and continued to create copiers and printers capable of printing more and more pages per minute. Xerox was such a printing powerhouse that Xerox became a verb for creating copies. They did have a corporate misstep in the 70s though. In 1979, Xerox purchased Western Union International as the basis for its proposed Xerox Telecommunications Network, or X10, for local loop communications. This was something that we didn't happen to get into in our recent episode 434 from July 2022 on Western Union. In 1982, three years later, Xerox regretted the purchase and ended up selling the WUI assets to MCI at a loss. So a rare misstep for this titan of of copying and, and printing.
0: So let's close the loop now and reunite the two threads of this episode. These third industrial revolution, electronic technologies from Xerox dating back to 1959, rather than eliminating paperwork, vastly increased the volume of paper documents being generated, reproduced, transmitted, filed, etc. The aforementioned HON company was there to step in and meet the exponentially growing need for filing cabinets both in offices and in people's homes. As we mentioned earlier, they are still the leading maker of filing cabinets in North America. This is a massive business. So, Rachel, I wanted to go back to you before we wrap up this episode. Filing cabinets, uh, oddly fascinating topic for something seemingly so mundane. Is this something that you were aware of before we started looking into this?
1: Um, Not really. Obviously, uh, working in public health, there is still a lot of paper involved. Um, Although uh, health networks are trying to move to electronic medical records and copies of things. There's still a ton of paperwork. There's a lot of submission forms that that, uh, come in with our samples for testing. And so therefore, there's a lot of paperwork that we do have to file. And according to our regulators, we have to keep uh, at least two years of of records around for our audits. So there's a lot of storage that happens. And we do use um, the five drawer really tall uh, vertical file cabinets. But I never really thought about where they come from, when they came from. Um, So it it was very interesting to get into the the nitty gritty of filing cabinets.
0: So if you're in the 19th century and you've got mass produced ball bearing technology uh, and you're playing Victoria three from Paradox, make sure you invest in filing cabinets. I've heard I haven't played yet myself, but I've heard that it's important to getting your uh, country economically be successful. Because you got to store all that paperwork for your interstate railroad corporations and banks and so forth that you've set up. So bear that in mind. Uh, And also, if you happen to actually be able to do time travel and go to the Second Industrial Revolution uh, or the 1950s, you're trying to figure out what to invest in, this is a good bet. Um, A lot of people are going to need to store and retrieve uh, paperwork documents quickly. And you can see now why this is so important.
1: Yeah. And I'm really surprised at all the contributions that Xerox made to the modern uh, computing world. I, I had no idea that Apple and Microsoft adopted these designs that Xerox originated, a missing link that I didn't know was missing.
0: I thought this was an interesting way of bridging the second industrial revolution and third industrial revolution topics and showing some linkages there. Uh, as we said, we are, you know, st- still going to be doing a lot of second industrial revolution content, but wherever we can, we're going to try to work in more stuff about the third industrial revolution, and also kind of pin down more clearly where that dividing line is. Obviously, it's not going to be a-, a clean, bright line, but we've already been talking about the way in which containerization revolution changes things. Uh, that starts in 1956. We are now talking today about Xerox emerging in 1959 and becoming a massive hit almost overnight. Uh, and there's various other things that we've talked about and will continue to talk about that all kind of emerge in this approximately same period. Uh, we didn't even get into today a lot of the breakthroughs in uh, semiconductor technology and things like that that were happening in also in 1959, um, you know, that that end up becoming part of this uh, Silicon Valley with Xerox and other corporations, as well as some of the other um, non-California sites of development that were happening at the time period. And there's a lot going on here in that transition of the late 1950s into the 1960s. And that is when what we would later clearly recognize as the third industrial revolution is emerging and differentiating out from the previous eras uh, of the second industrial revolution with its things like electrification and telephonics, right? Now you're diverging into a more electronics-based, lasers-based uh, mode of things, the internet obviously later, uh, which we just did a, a significant episode on, but also the way in which economies are organized as influenced by containerization and so forth. So keep these themes in mind as we talk about these things, and I think you'll see these patterns uh, emerging more and more clearly. And a lot of this is a learning process for us, too, as we're kind of getting a handle on these things, because, for example, I wouldn't have even thought to look up the stuff about Xerox if it hadn't happened to kind of come to mind as I was looking into that company HON that made these filing cabinets in the period after uh, World War II and, and trying to figure out, like, okay, what is the the thing that propels them to market dominance after decades of filing cabinets being an existing technology. And it's not just because they made this, you know, great inexpensive, new reliable design for mass production. That's not wrong, but it's not the only thing. So you have to think, okay, what else is creating a lot of new paperwork at the time to create these new markets. And then you hit on things like, Oh, Xerox, obviously. And you start looking around and realizing like the connections that exist there, and that sort of starts to make sense. Uh, and you can see this as an a, um, echo on an even larger scale of the processes that have been happening in, say, the end of the 1850s, the 1860s, 70s, and then 1886 when you get filing cabinets. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you for being on the show this week.
1: Thanks. It was a fun topic to research.